Our story today begins with John the Baptist, the guy we talked about last week, the one who wore camel hair clothes with a fashionable belt. He ate locusts and honey, stood out in the desert, preaching about the coming Messiah and immersing people in the Jordan River as a sign of repentance. So John, as a result of this wilderness activity, was imprisoned for his radical preaching. It was offensive to the religious establishment, and it was a threat to Rome, uh, especially if this Messiah was going to bring Rome to task for its occupation of Israel. And so John hears all of this stuff that Jesus is doing, teaching and healing and exercising demons out of folks. And he sends a delegation of his own followers to ask Jesus if he's the one that they should be expecting, if he's the Messiah, or, or should we be looking for someone else? This is the point that I got stuck on in this story. I think it's like two verses in. So most of my work happened just sitting with this part of the story. John's inquiry is strange to me, especially in light of the stories that lead up to this one. You remember how John was immersing people in the Jordan River as a sign of repentance? Well, Jesus was one of the people that he immersed. And at the time, John was so enamored with Jesus that he almost refused to let Jesus uh, be a subject of baptism for us. In fact, he said, Jesus, like, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And yet here Jesus or here John is saying, are you the one? Perhaps John is asking because Jesus doesn't fit the messianic expectation of the time. Miracles were actually not a super common expectation for this Messiah figure. But more than that, John's message was that the Messiah would bring judgment. He would bring a winnowing fork, a pitchfork, and separate the wheat from the chaff. And he would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The wheat is the good people, ostensibly, who belong to God. And the chaff is the bad people who receive God's judgment and wrath. Apparently, Jesus has not been setting enough people on fire for John. Even with John's unmet expectations, his request remains strange to me because of what Jesus says about John in our story today. That he is the greatest man that has ever lived this side of the kingdom of God. Jesus also says that he's a prophet. But more than a prophet, he's the messenger. The second coming of Elijah. The one the prophet Malachi said would announce the return of God to Israel. And yet, here is John, confused. The greatest man ever. The the reincarnation of Elijah. John isn't sure what's going on. And if John is confused, what hope does that leave the rest of us? Sometimes it's difficult to see how God is working. Even for the best of our species. Even for those who are the most tuned in spiritually. Even when we're doing our best to pay attention and look for it. Sometimes 
God's work is a mystery, which is a great coincidence because our theme for Advent this year is mystery. God works in mysterious ways, as some like to say. This story about John led me to think about how other people in Scripture who had who might have had a hard time seeing how God was working. Abraham and Sarah. God promises them in Genesis 12 that their descendants will be more numerous than the, the sand on the seashore and that their family will be a conduit for blessing of the whole earth. Twenty-five years later, they are still waiting for their first child. Put yourself in their shoes. Two and a half decades later, might they have been asking, God, how are you working right now? Or Joseph, he has these revelatory dreams from God about his role in, the, in his family and about leadership for some special purpose. And then his brothers traffic him and sell him into slavery. After several years in slavery, Joseph is unjustly accused of a crime and he's incarcerated. Might Joseph have been asking in prison, God, how are you working right now? Or Esther, a Jewish woman who was chosen among so many women to be the queen of Xerxes. No one knows that she's Jewish. Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman, gets offended when Esther's uncle, Mordecai, won't bend his knee in honor to him. And so he gets Xerxes to sign an edict enacting genocide against Mordecai and his entire people. Esther and Mordecai had to be wondering, God, how are you working right now? Israel, centuries later, had received a promise through their prophets of an anointed leader who would bring the kingdom of God, who would drive out evil and oppressive kingdoms, and they lived with this promise for hundreds of years, even in the midst of occupation by one world power after another world power after another world power. Simeon and Anna were two of these people who went to the temple every day to pray for this promised deliverer. Don't you think they were wondering, God, how are you working right now? Michael Judge, who's an editor for the Dallas Morning News, wrote a commentary piece this week for the Living Our Faith newsletter uh, in the paper. And he, he told the story of his family and how his oldest brother, Steve, was diagnosed with encephalitis, swelling or inflammation in the brain, and then later schizophrenia while he was an Air Force Academy cadet. And, and how it devastated the family. That, that all of this promise, all of the tenderness and gentleness that was Steve was robbed by mental illness. And they wondered, what, what has done this? What's the cause of this? Is this fate? Is this a virus? Is this God? A few years later, another brother of Michael's, John, was also diagnosed with schizophrenia. He battled voices, hallucinations, and side effects from this, the powerful antipsychotic drugs that he was on. He ended up taking his own life 
when Michael was 16 years old. His oldest brother, John, was shaken so much by the loss that he attempted to take his own life, but barely missed his heart with a knife. Those circumstances would probably lead any of us to wonder, God, how are you working right now? Sometimes, a lot of the time, most of the time, maybe, it's difficult to see how God is working, even when we're paying attention. I wonder about you. uh, In what ways is it difficult for you or for us right now to see how God is working? Anybody can talk if you want. Um, So I find myself um, paranoid to wonder what God might be up to with the fear that it makes a statement as to what he's not. Could you expound a little bit? So there's a tornado that goes through Dallas. I have no idea. Good question. Thank you for sharing. Terry? I'll share a little bit of a personal thing for me. Um, y'all know that our oldest daughter isn't faithful, and that just was a very big concern in my heart. And I, I remember thinking that and being silent about it because I felt like how the year when I mess up. Um, and I know there's a lot of other years that feel the same way. And about four or five years ago, I remember praying about it because I thought that I was going to really lose it. That how could that happen to us? Um, and I just know that God told me very, heard it very clearly that um, she was his daughter too and that I needed to give her to him. And I remember asking God, can I trust you with her? <laughs> I just say, can I trust you with her? And mm-hmm. he said, yes, you just need to give her to me. And I remember I did um, lift her up to him and just said, all right, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to just let it go and trust you to 
somehow, some way work in that relationship. And I, many times I revisit that with God um, because instead of, to me, feeling that she's drawing closer, I feel like in so many ways she's going the opposite direction. Um, and so I just feel, just did it. And ask God many times, you know, can I see something? Can I see you working? And what do I see? And I'm having the answer to that. I, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just have to just rest in the fact that somehow, some way, I'm going to trust God to do what He needs to do. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very hard thing for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Terry. I don't know how God is working in the responses you gave. I have a pretty good feeling we won't be able to resolve it this morning, if ever. And if that's true, then perhaps our response to the mystery is more important than the resolution of the mystery. The truth is, we can't actually resolve the mystery if we try. This series on mystery is not a charge for anti-intellectualism where you just we're just asking you to hey let's turn off our brains and not really think hard about this because uh, maybe we might be proven wrong or something. The truth is we should think as hard as we can, but the truth is we can think as hard as we want and we come up against our human limitations every time. We are finite creatures uh, in this infinite universe and world that God has created. So the question is, how will we respond to the mystery? It's, it's inherent in things. It's inevitable. How do we face this mystery? Abraham and Sarah, who waited 25 years for a child, end up giving birth to Isaac. After trying to take their destiny into their own hands with their handmaid, Hagar, mind you. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob's family proliferates and becomes the people of Israel. Joseph, who was imprisoned and enslaved, ended up becoming the vice pharaoh of Egypt and worked all kinds of justice and mercy for marginalized communities that were trying to survive in the midst of this great famine, one of which was the people of Israel. Esther, whose people were on the verge of extinction, risks her life to implore King Xerxes to spare her people, to stop Haman from carrying out his plans for genocide. The king ends up impaling Haman on the very pole he had constructed for impaling Mordecai. Haman hung on his own gallows. The Messiah Israel had waited hundreds of years for. Ended up being Jesus. The very one John had inquired about. Just in a way that was very different than anyone had expected. God was at work in all of those stories. But I don't share these stories in an attempt to resolve the mystery of God's activity. To present some fairy tale ending that we can hang our hats on. If only we'll just hold out and wait for God to work. Because frankly, these stories don't come close to resolving the mystery for me. I still have so many questions. What about all those people who died and never got to see the Messiah? 
What took so long? What about all the suffering and oppression under those foreign powers? Why did Joseph have to suffer so much? Couldn't God have acted earlier? 25 years to wait for a child? I mean, maybe some waiting is good. But is it cruel to have made them wait so long? I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to know how God is working. Even in retrospect. But in spite of my questions, in the midst of my questions, these stories give me hope. Hope that God is at work. That God cares. That God sees the plight of the oppressed. That God acts on our behalf. Michael Judge wrote that Dallas Morning News commentary piece as a response to this question. When life feels dark, what gives you hope? And his answer in the midst of all of that tragedy of mental illness and suicide in his family was his mother, June. His mother, June, fought and advocated. She didn't surrender after the death of her son. She started an alliance to raise awareness about the disease of mental illness. And she's still doing that today at age 83. Judge says, thanks to my mother, my brother Steve lived a full and meaningful life knowing that he was loved, as his mother would like to say. And Judge believes that his brother John, who had committed suicide when he was 16, knew that he was loved too. And that, the love of their mother, is what gave them hope. I believe that God is like June. God is not an absentee parent. God is a devoted mother. God is with us in the mystery. God fights for us, advocates for us. And most of all, God wants us to know that we are loved. And because of this, we can face mystery with hope. How's it going to work out for us? I have no idea. But these stories give me hope. Hope that Jesus will come again. Hope that God will bring the new heavens and the new earth. Hope that God will ultimately transform us into the people that he wants us to be. Hope that in the big things that really count, God will come through. Hope that in the small things that are in the midst of it all, God is with us. And loves us. And is fighting for us. That hope, I believe, is the hope of the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah. What expressions of hope are in your heart this morning that you would like to share with us? I will say, Terry, I heard hope in your comment about wanting to trust God in the midst of that.
Gift. Thank you for sharing that. That's happened to everybody in history so far. One more out there? Thank you. 
There's the meaning that the that the Genesis writer makes of what happened to Joseph that I think is really interesting. Um, uh, they say something to the effect of what others intended for harm, God intended for good. And God is really crafty like that, like uh, turning things on themselves and letting evil not only letting evil implode on itself sometimes it seems but also uh, redeeming evil for good somehow like again like I have theories about that but wow like way above my intellectual pay grade on that one Uh, I'll conclude with this great poem as every great sermon does uh, from William Broderick that embodies this posture of hope in the face of mystery. Once you've heard a child cry out to heaven for help and go unanswered, nothing's ever the same again. Nothing. Even God changes. But there's a healing hand at work that cannot be deflected from its purpose. I just can't make sense of it other than to cry. Those tears are part of what it means to be a monk or a Christian. Out there in the world, it can be very cold. It seems to be about luck, good and bad. And the distribution is absurd. We have to be candles burning between hope and despair. Faith and doubt, life and death, all the opposites. Amen. Charles, it just occurred to me that Brittany and I had this discussion this week. Is that we were just we talked about things and we were discussing some things, and I said to her, you know, I don't know why, why I don't understand. Why sometimes God lets this happen and why he would heal this person and not heal another person. And we've kind of gotten this discussion about some of that, you know, and it just occurred to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, we just had this discussion this week. Um, and so it's interesting that now we've had this discussion today because, you know, I just was like, I just, many times I think that at this age you won't have it all figured out, and yet I feel like I have nothing figured out at this age. Yeah. That is worse than when I was in my 20s. Yeah. But um, I, just, I just thought about that. I'm trying to get with that discussion this week about that mystery of God. Yeah. Well, these are big questions, and I, 
I guess my response today is I, I don't know how to to alleviate the tension uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that has integrity or in a way that just doesn't make stuff up. Uh, but but I, I guess what I'm interested in is, uh, is there a way for us to respond and to, to hold our questions in hope rather than in fear or or even even deep skepticism or anger or hatred? There's a place for all of those feelings and emotions. Uh, lament is a good example of that. Uh, there's God's big enough for us to hold those questions with frustration. Uh, but at the same time, right alongside of it, is there a way for us to hold these questions with hope that the that the arc of the universe actually is bent toward love and justice and goodness?